And I think that's also kind of some of Heidegger's skepticism about technology was exactly that, that it kind of comes to stand between us and what being really has to offer if we adopt a more humble uh, approach to it. And I think the same thing applies here to being a man, that rather than looking at it as this gender, I can be all these kind of things and I can even, I mean, use technology to change my body and then become something else. Mm, sometimes we, when, if we get too preoccupied with this, we may miss some of the potentials in just being humble towards, wow, being a man or, uh, or, being a, or, or our relationship to women. We're here with Ole Bjerg on Technosocial. Um, Ole is an associate professor at Copenhagen. Uh, is it the business school? Yes, it is a business school. Yes. Copenhagen Business School. Yeah. And you have quite a, um, a kind of eclectic body of work, right? Like just glancing at your website, it ranges from things like banking and cryptocurrency to addiction and now most recently on masculinity. Yeah. So. I think it would be awesome maybe if we can like tease into a little bit about what is the central thread that ties your work together. But I think first of all, what would be super interesting to um, to kick off this conversation is to kind of think about this new book and particularly the influence of Heidegger on the new book. Like Heidegger is a thinker that, well, I know Daniel in particular has been very influenced by especially his work on technology. And like Daniel's currently writing his own book about, um, well, design influenced by Heidegger. Um, I tend to think and work a lot more in this space of masculinity, but and I'm not super familiar with Heidegger, but I also kind of am aware of him and his ideas and his suddenly his stature. And I think this is like a really fruitful ground for us to begin with. And then we can just see where we end up. So with that said, um, Ole, welcome. And what is it in Heidegger that like you bring to thinking masculinity in this moment? Um, I guess one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is to get... I was kind of dissatisfied with the sort of existing options for talking about being a man. So on the one hand, there's like social constructivism, gender, all that kind of stuff, where you kind of think, yeah, masculinity is all about, you know, like roles and it's all about being socialized into and it's all about power and all that. So you have that on the one side. And then on the other hand, you have biology, evolutionary psychology, where you kind of, where you just see where being a man is like tied into our yeah biological constitution as males. And um, I was kind of dissatisfied with both of them for various reasons. So I wanted to find something, something else, like a, another space or another realm or domain for defining this. And so what I, I do with Heidegger is that I say, well, 
yes, of course, there's something to both of these two, but basically being a man is, um, is tied, it, it's a matter of being, it's a matter of ontology. So it's a way of being. So just like um, if you take a lion, for instance, what, what makes, a, what, what is it like to be a lion? And, um, and, and, you, and, and, and what is the difference between a, being a lion and being a turtle, for instance? Of course, there's matters of biology here, but I think there's also elements of just being, like being a lion, right? Uh, and I wanted to get into the same space uh, in terms of talking about being a man. Um, and then, so at the heart of Heidegger's uh, thinking about, so in being in time, he talks about Dasein. Um, so this condition of human being. And the way he, he defines Dasein is by saying something along the lines of Dasein is that particular being for whom being itself is an issue. And I take that as my definition of what it means to be a man. So being a man um, is a matter of figuring out what it means to be a man. So, and there's, of course, there's an element of circularity in that, but at the same time, if we think about it, it really isn't that circular um, because it's something, it, it's something that's, that we are preoccupied with all the time, like figure. So what does it actually mean, mean to be a man? And you can see it. I mean, if you just look at boys, they're, I mean, <laughs> they think about it all the time. Well, they're, they're kind of really preoccupied with this. What does it mean to be a man? I, I need to figure that out and then I need to do it. Right. And it's something that's so deep in us in a way. And I don't think that's a matter of it's, you can reduce it to biology, and, but you can also not reduce it to something social. It's, it's a matter of being. Um, so that's kind of, yeah, where I wanted to, I wanted to find like, um, one of the things I like about Heidegger, I love this many, he's my favorite philosopher. So, uh, uh, but what I think he does better than, mm, I was gonna say all, but most philosophers, is his way of asking questions. He's so brilliant at sort of asking the most fundamental questions. And I love that. And so that's also what I wanted to get at is actually to say, what's actually the interesting question here? And, and oftentimes when we talk about what it means to be a man or men and women, we often start with this question. So what's the difference between men and women? And already when you take that, you kind of go, hmm, you, you kind of go down a, a particular route, um, I find. So I wanted to see if I could talk about what it means to be a man without saying anything about what it means to be a woman. So um, there's very little, there's a little bit about women in here, but it's, it's I, I really wanted to kind of say, can we just carve out this space and talk about what it means to be a man and then leave whatever it means to be a woman, leave that to another book or, uh, yeah. Fantastic. So would you say that being a man is, <clears throat> is something that also expands more broadly to being itself? And would you even characterize that as a verb or a process or a continual questioning? It's, it's both, it's both a process and 
mm, and a constant. Mm -hmm. we could, uh, the way I talk about it in the book is I say, I also talk about it in terms of, so being a man, first of all, it's something you, that you just are, if you, unless you're not. <laughs> like if you're born into the world as a male, then in some sense, you are already a man, or at least you are sort of automatically on the path of becoming a man. So more or less regardless of what you do, at some point you're going to grow hair on in your face and on your penis and in your ass and all kinds of other things are going to happen that is going to make you look like a man. That kind of, you don't have to really do very much to do that. So on the one hand, um, there's that aspect. That, but at the same time, we also all have know that being a man, it's also a question of ethics. And you can think about it this way. Imagine, imagine at, that you're at your funeral. Um, of course, you're dead, so you can't hear it. But anyway, if you imagine at your funeral, someone stands up. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's your best friend. Maybe it's your brother. Someone stands up and says, oh, Daniel, he was a good person or he was a good human being. Feel how that feels. And then feel this other one. Oh, Daniel, he was a good man. And at least to my, when I feel that, it's very different for me. The second one is much more, uh, you can also think about if someone were to say to you, oh, Daniel, uh, you're not a real human being. Or if someone were to say to you, you're not a real man. The other one hits you like right in the face where the other one is like sort of just a slap on your shoulder. And it's because we know deep down, it's, it's when we've been born into the world as men, we are born into the world with this task of becoming men. That's kind of our life task. Um, so, so it's, it's, yeah. So, the, so the, 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 the answer here is yes, it's, it's like a, it's a thing. <laughs> it's, it's that we are whatever we like it or not or whatever. And then, but it's also a process. It's a task. It's something we, yeah, uh, need to work on. And it's something that goes on until we die. I mean, uh, it's not something you, when you're 80 years old, it's not like when you're 80, you stop caring about whether you're a, a, a good man or not. No, 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 no. It goes on until you die. Um, it, it sounds like a, it's a specific flavor of temporality. Deleuze says that <clears throat> speaks about human becoming as opposed to human beings, or rather being yeah. as a noun. And uh, I think he connects very well with Heidegger. And that's, mm -hmm. it's the idea of human becomings, of being as that which continually is, continually questions itself, not necessarily as one thing and another, like a question mm -hmm. and an answer, but the process itself the time flowing is itself what one is and perhaps the flavor of masculinity or maleness or whatever we want to yeah. call it versus the other flavors uh they are precisely that perhaps flavors tints lenses mm, that are distinct from other lenses it's different to be a man yeah. and to be a turtle yeah and it's also i would also say it's different I would even go, I would even like turn Heidegger back on himself or even Deleuze. I'm not much of a Deleuze uh, scholar, 
But I think when Heidegger talks about Dasein uh, as like the, the being that I am, I think he's, he, he doesn't go far enough along the lines of his own thinking. Because I think Dasein, or of course he doesn't use the term human being, uh, but I think it's even just talking about Dasein, it's too, um, he has this distinction between Vorhandenheit and Zuhandenheit. So the English ones are uh, present at hand and no, present at hand and ready at hand. So ready at hand is when we use things like I take my telephone and oh yeah, yeah, then it's ready at hand. Uh, and, and present at hand is when I kind of measure it and say, oh, it's uh, 15 centimeters and blah, blah, blah. So I have this distance. And I would say the concept of Dasein and, and especially the concept of, of human being is more to the side of present at hand. Whereas I would say man, as in a man, is more ready at hand. It, when we use ours, when we are in the, like, have you ever seen a human being? Have you ever seen a human being? I mean, what does a human being look like? We can't really say that because it's, it's such an abstract category. Whereas, have you ever seen a man? Yes, I have. I, I'm looking at two right now. Um, of course, I know there's an element of sophistry here also, but at the same time, I think um, when we engage in life and with each other, and, and especially when we engage in the things in life that are most important, we do not engage as human beings. We engage as men or women for that matter. But yeah, as men. It's um, uh, it's it, it's, kind of, it's for, to me like uh, the concept of human being. It has no colors. It has no flavors. It doesn't smell. What I mean, it's like sort of a sterile. Whereas being a man smells and it tastes and it, it has flavors and all this. It's, yeah, um, that's interesting. Uh, indeed, I agree with you. It is more ready at hand. <clears throat> It feels like the the concept or concept as a tool of human being is very humanist and is very you know did a peasant in the eight, in the twelve hundreds know what a human being was probably not but they knew what a man was and a yeah. woman was and, and and those modes of being in the world are perhaps deeper seated and have more ready at handness they are more to be used practically than than the human because the concept of the human is humanist, is in a way theological. It is of the humanist order. It is of the liberal order. It is perhaps post Descartes. I don't know if I'm stre stretching the idea too much here. Yeah, I, 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 know, I know what you, I, I, yeah, no, I know what you mean. And it's, um, you could also ask the question, does a lion know what an animal is? Mm -hmm. I don't think it does. I think mm -hmm. it does in a way, it, I, I think it does know what, what a lion is. It probably also knows what a zebra is to some extent, right? But it certainly doesn't know what an animal is. And even, I mean, do you know what an animal is? How many legs does an animal have? Mm. Well, we don't know. What color is an animal? We don't know. And it's, of course, the distance between lion and animal is probably bigger than the one between man and human being, but it's the same kind of, uh, same kind of distance, I feel. Yes, yes, fascinating. There's a certain salience to, to, to 
Well, it's the first time that I, I actually am thinking about the concept of man as something ready at hand, but there's a certain salience that has been learned through evolution and through one's life uh, in that it, there's, it, it, makes, it makes sense uh, uh, to use it. Mm -hmm. I think that's also another... So when you look at the history of philosophy, there's actually very little... There's not so much talk about being a man. We tend to, especially in modern philosophy, there's more like you talk about the subject or you talk about Dasein or whatever it's called, but there are these uh, uh, like sort of more neutral concepts. And I think in philosophy, there's an element of hesitation also to go to work with this concept or go into that. And I think part of it has to do with some philosophers, at least they like to get away from life. They, they like to just play around with things, right? And, and, and thinking of yourself as Dasein or as a subject is less uh, committing than if you, if you, the minute you start thinking about yourself as a man, you're in this realm of ethics and you're in this realm of, um, you're also in this realm of inevitable failure. I mean, I think, it's, it's much easier to fail as a man than it is to fail as a human being. I mean, I, I, I can't think, so what's a good human being? It's something that, ah, yeah, he, he, he uh, what do you call it when you, um, when you separate your trash, like mm -hmm. you, yeah, yeah, you put your glass Recycling. here, and you, yeah, you, you recycle mm -hmm. and you don't curse too much and uh, you're against climate change and, you know, all these kind of things. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, whereas being a good man is not, it's not just about sort of following these kind of rules or not, or not getting too far out of it. It's something, it's, it's a much more um, deep and much more difficult thing to do. And it's also something you just fail constantly. I mean, how, when can, when are you ever enough of a man? It doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Um so it's a much more risky uh, territory to, wow. yeah. Uh, and, and also confronting in a way. And I think, I think that's part of the reason why philosophy sometimes tends to kind of move away from it. Because the concept of the human being is universalizing in many ways. It is yeah. by definition applies to everyone. Whereas being a man in this sense, it may not because there is the question, are you man enough or are you yeah. a good man? Because yes. you can yeah. fail at that. And that to me reminds the way we're discussing this concept. Even you said it yourself is very technological, ready at hand and present at hand. These are, these are, these are things that Heidegger mentioned, I believe in relation to technology as well, at least. And uh, mm -hmm. the, 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 I want to make a big jump here and throw many things at the table. Yeah, yeah no, go ahead. So uh, in Technology is essential for the unfoldment of being, and it has a, a, a way in which it, it frames it. It frames how being comes to pass, and that's kind of why technology is so interesting. And I'm very keen to hear a little bit about your connection to uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain and all of that, because that's that's <laughs> indeed phenomenal. But before we get into that, yeah. um, <clears throat> Camille Paglia says that technology and architecture and art have been traditionally male domains for the reason that, uh, and I'm gonna butcher it, and so please don't quote me on this, I'm just thinking out loud. Yeah. Uh, she mentions that the reason why that is the case is because 
it emulates the structure of, of, of the male orgasm, of the male biology. It has to do with a projection and a, a projection forward, a, a re lunging forward, because whereas perhaps the woman already is, because perhaps meaning in life is already embedded within the body, man needs to go and become, and in that becoming, it may fail, because yes, it may fail. So I think that that has to do with the way you're distinguishing uh, human uh, yeah. and man. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with uh, Camilla Paglia on this, mm -hmm. or, or uh, I think you could make that argument. The way I talk about, I actually talk about this in the book, so in the first half of the book, or a little bit more, I use uh, Heidegger. And then in the second part, I actually introduce uh, Hannah Arndt. And Hannah Arndt, she has this distinction between labor, work, and action. Labor, work, and action. And labor is the base. It, I would say like the most basic form of labor is labor. It's like, here's a human being. I created it out of my womb, right? And then taking care of it, of course, but but uh, especially sort of giving birth to it, I think. And then work is like building the house where you can live and make sure there's a car that you can drive around and all this kind of more. Yeah. Uh, and then action is uh, something else. It's more to do with. Um, I can't even remember what the. Uh, so it's. <laughs> I can't remember what I've written in my own book. Uh, anyway, we'll leave that because the, mm. the key distinction here is actually between work and labor. And I think labor is, is to some extent, it's more the domain of the woman because she's the one who can give birth to the baby. Whereas uh, for men, we kind of then need to look into the other realms, the realm of work or the realm of action. Action is also, action is also, it is about creating new things also through your actions and, uh, and, and creating history also. So I think the reason why men are more, I think we can make there's like a positive uh, explanation like the one you made, why men are more attracted to technology and these things. But I think there's also a, a negative one or not normatively negative. It's just the reason is we can't make human beings. We just can't. <laughs> Women can make human beings. And I can, I sometimes, I know this is a little bit, but anyway, I, I was kind of asking myself, if I could make human, what would I rather make a human being or a book? It's a no brainer, a human being, of course. I mean, and how many books would I have to make in order that I would say, oh, now I've done as much as I would have if I'd made a, uh, I don't know how many, 500 or 500. I don't know how many, but it's just like, it's not the same currency in a way. So I think, I think there's something about, there's, a, there's, there's this opportunity or possibility of, and also talks about natality, like of creating new beginnings. And I think the most miraculous new beginning you can create is another human being. It is still, uh, regardless of whatever Elon Musk may come up with, it is more, it is still the most sophisticated thing or whatever you want to call it in the universe, or at least in our universe, is a person. So if you can create that, 
why would you spend your money on creating like cars or stuff like that? Um, so I think there's this, yeah, uh, some of the things that are kind of realized in just creating human beings, mm, that's bad to us. So we need to come up with other stuff. Uh, and then there's also kind of like a, a another element. I, I don't think I write that in the book, but I would say that it's also, I mean, <laughs> we know if we know we can't create human beings, but we kind of want to be part of the process anyway. It's kind of cool, right? So, so and, and quite quickly, we figure out who can create them and who can't. So we feel, ah, they're the ones who, who can create them. I want to get one, of, oh, I, I want to interact with one of those. And then we kind of think, okay, well, what can I do to get her attention? Uh, I'll, I'll build a spaceship or I'll build a, or to do all this kind of make a cryptocurrency or whatever it is. Uh, so I, I think there's also that element to it. Um, yeah. Hmm. What does Heidegger have anything to teach us about masculinity in this peculiarly modern or postmodern moment? Because obviously he's writing there in this kind of like early to mid 20th century, the, um, the period, the kind of boom of the, um, yeah. Of the the kind of like bourgeois civilization, I guess, or in the interwar period, even and like this moment when the traditions and the way of life that had been there for hundreds, if not thousands, of years are starting to be flushed away into the history books, if you will. It's like once upon a time, probably the world experience of most men was: my dad is a shepherd, I'll be a shepherd, or my dad's a fisherman, I'll be a fisherman. Or even if you were higher up, you know, if you're in the aristocracy, my dad is an aristocrat, I'm going to be an aristocrat. <clears throat> when now in the 20th century in particular and in the Western societies, the career as a path through life, the individual career where one takes a life trajectory that could be radically different from that of the parents is opened up to the masses for the first time, which means this question of how do I become a man relative to what my cultural understanding of being a man is, mm. is no longer so clear. So yeah, like initial question, does Heidegger have anything to teach us on this point? Yeah, oh, that's a good question. Actually, so the, on the first, I want to say that Heidegger says, he says very little, if anything, about being a man versus being a woman or femininity versus masculinity. Which is also why it's so easy. It's I also used him when I was doing my work on money, and he, he said nothing about money. So this, and that kind of gives it a good. There's nothing you need to weed out first before you can start working. You can say like, here's the framework, kind of it's clean, and then you can just start putting in the stuff, whether it's money or it's men and women. That's kind of what I've done. So, but having said that, I will say that I write in the book. I have a if not a whole chapter, at least a uh, quite substantial discussion, uh, which actually touches on that question and you raise Owen. And so what I argue in the book, I argue in the book that today we are, there's this trend or there's this movement or whatever we want to call it that I call the new gender moralism, the new gender moralism. And it's this, like ideological movement or whatever you want to call it, activist movement, that kind of, it seems to kind of want to get away from men and women or being man and being woman and wants to explode it into like multiple 
genders and and also so the way I think about being a man is it's something that's coming from here. I'm kind of I'm thrown into the world as a man, and then I need to figure it out. So it's kind of it's coming from there. Whereas when you talk about gender, it tends to be something that's in front of you. It's something you can choose. It's something you need to create. And there's something um, on the one hand that, that initially there's something very liberating about that. It's like, oh, I can do whatever I want. I can be this. I can be that. I can create this. I can create that. There's something that's like a teenage energy in that. Or even maybe even a childish energy. Everything is possible. Oh, that's exhilarating. Da, 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 da. But then it also it's also an energy which kind of exhausts itself quite quickly. So once you've kind of been, oh, yeah, now I'm this gender, now I'm that gender, then, and then sometimes you get really tired. It kind of wears you out in a way because you don't get the energy from here. You have to create all the energy yourself, right? So um, I take, so Heidegger, he has, in Sign of Sight, he has this, he has this analysis of Dasman, which is this, it's kind of his, he, it's in a way, it's his concept of modernity in a way, or yeah. Uh, in authenticity. Sort of, yeah, exactly. Like, like sort of uh, things can mean different things that this, it, it doesn't really matter what they mean. And uh, yeah. And it's it's and it's also a place where I, rather than me taking responsibility, I kind of put responsibility onto the man or onto Dasman. Um, uh, we shouldn't confuse Dasman in German means. Uh, I think he calls it the they. We don't have a really good English word for it. It's like everyone in a way. Um, it's like when you say they well, it's a bit say like that. one can. So one says yeah, like exactly. man can do this. It's like one exactly. can do this. Yes, thank you. Exactly ah. one. And, and we know this from just like talking to people when they when they use the word uh, one one gets very frustrated when one cannot get a job, and then you're like, yeah, that's kind of true. Can you not get a job and are you frustrated? Is that what you're talking about or what? Yeah, exactly. Ah, okay, then please own that yourself or, yeah. So there's this fleeing away from responsibility that he analyzes in uh, in his analysis of Dasman. And then I say, we see some of the same things in this new gender moralism, I think, there's, that there's a reluctance to take, reluctance to take responsibility for whatever you've been have with you as you've been thrown into the world. Um, so I would say being a man is like, it's something, it's a task you've been given. It's also a gift you've been given. So you should ask yourself, hmm, I wonder why I've been given this gift. I wonder what I'm supposed to do with it. Rather than just look at in front of you and say, ooh, what do I feel like? What would give me the most satisfaction? What can I do uh, that? Um, so I would I, I see some parallels between kind of the time that that Heidegger was writing in. Um, he also has this concept of eigentlichkeit, which means authenticity. And eigentlich means kind of being eigentlich is like being like yourself in a way. It kind of has that 
And it means taking responsibility for what you are and who you are. And I think that in, in this, what I call this new gender moralism, there's like a, there's like this celebration of moving away from what you are. It's like that's it's like a fleeing all the time. It's like like if if I would if if I were to categorize you as something, say, oh, you are this, then they would be like, oh, I'm offended. Don't put me into a box because I can also be this and this and this and this and this and this. So there's this idea that it's much, yeah, this ambiguity that is is better than just saying, yeah, this is what I am. Let's see what I can do with it. So um yeah. It's an odd one, isn't it? Because on one hand, uh, as you say, there might be a certain delegation to Das Mann uh, as for the justificatory moralism of why one is why one is, because one can be many things and therefore mm -hmm. the moral, therefore even the slave moral. But on the other hand, it, I don't know, it's a celebration of becoming, right? It's a celebration of late stage capitalism and the possibilities that it has provided for creativity, creativity mm -hmm. of expression. Um, so in that sense, wouldn't it be another continuation of the becoming of man as questioning what man is continually? Mm -hmm. I don't have the answer to this, but- No, but, no, no, no. But, but you're quite, I, 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 I totally get your point. And of course, it's not like you could, what I just said could also be construed as Ah, oh, so you just want all men to be do, do, like this and you want all boys, they can only play with cars and all girls can only play with dolls and do, they don't do, you know, like that kind of, yeah. And that's what, not what I'm saying. That's not what, and I'm also open to the fact that being a man, I mean, for everyone, I think the kind of man that you can become um, can be... Um, it's very different. It needs to be very different. And there can be all kinds of varieties of being a man, including, I mean, including being a, whatever, a trans man or something, I mean, all kinds of stuff. It's all of that is important. And, and I, I, for one, I've no desire, I, I don't want to, I don't want to judge any of that. Uh, what I do want to say is that regardless of the kind of man you decide to be, I think one should take responsibility for that and say, this is something I'm, yeah, this is what I need to do, or this is what I, um, and then it's also another element where I think one should be, um, I think one of the appeals of this new or modern concept of gender is that it has this tendency where it's like I'm bigger than my gender. It's in front of me and I can kind of decide what I want to do with it. So gender is, I'm bigger than gender. And there's something nice about, oh yeah, I'm big. I, da, 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 da. And, but I think there's limited energy in that. Whereas I think if we think of being a man as something that's bigger than me, it's something that is, has been given to me by the world in a sense, then there's, there's another kind of energy in that where I kind of think, hmm, I wonder why I was thrown into the world as a man. I wonder why that is. And for some, the answer might be, yeah, that's probably so that I should 
whatever, go out and be a trans man or whatever they want to do. That's totally fine. Right. But I think there's another type of energy in thinking that it's coming from here. And I think there's also in some parts of this new gender moralism. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of anger there. There's a lot of anger against what's coming from here. Mm -hmm. Like, um, and, 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 I, I also think there's a, there's a limited energy in that. Mm-hmm. I think I know what you're pointing towards. Um, maybe the difference could be the difference between uh, the first person close rapport with a design and then answering the questions that it poses mm-hmm. versus perhaps an excessive delegation to this man of the validation of, of those theories and, and and this applies whether you want to be yeah. uh whatever you want to be yeah. i guess i guess that the point of being a man whatever you actually whatever that looks like yeah and it re- is something that is sort of a, a striving away from the inauthenticity and from the morality of the crowd and a striving towards a way of being that is firsthand that is the sign that is embodied and perhaps it is in that place that we can perhaps thread it through from the back to the front yeah and, and i'll tell you what it's got yeah. me thinking and this is a a point very inspired by our friend Cadell lost i think that within this this new gender field there is this kind of like desire and expectation to experience gender and gender identity as liberation and as a kind of ecstasy. It's like I can find my true identity and then I will have some kind of subjective freedom, enjoyment that I no longer had. And I think the interesting thing for me is to flip it and to actually be interested in like, what are the paradoxes of this position of being in the world? It's not like, how can I enjoy being as a man so much as like, what are the particularly unique struggles and contradictions, battles that one fights as a man that one would not fight in another position? Mm-hmm. And the same question can be asked for women. And I think the same question is also super interesting indeed for transgender people and for androgynous people. And I kind of hope that the discourse within the uh, the trans community does mature from this kind of ecstasy and celebration into a real investigation of, okay, what is the paradox of being in this in this body? in this position obviously on the one hand there is the the social pressure and the social perhaps rejection in some stances but i think it goes deeper like what does it mean to be a sexual being in a trans body and for that matter what does it mean to be a sexual being in a in a man's body mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, yeah i was and i was thinking about so we previously we talked about heidegger's notion of technology and there's also a so technology has this capacity of controlling and managing and manipulating nature. So with technology, we can call, do what kind look at agriculture, like, oh, we can uh, genetically modify the crops and then there will be no uh, diseases to them and we can grow much more and we can, uh, we can do all these kinds of things with nature. And there's a... There, there is and there has been like a a lot of 
enjoyment in that. Like, oh, we are bigger than nature. Like, just like we're bigger than our gender, we're also bigger than nature. We can control nature. We can genetically modify that. But I also think, and that's, I think that's also what we're seeing today, that <laughs> this energy is short-lived in a way. That once we've kind of, oh, yeah, genetically modified crops, well, and then we're kind of like, oh, okay, maybe it's not that cool anyway. And maybe there's, maybe, maybe there's another type of energy in being more humble towards nature and thinking, whoa, nature, wow, uh, it's, it's big. And I think that's also kind of some of Heidegger's skepticism about technology was exactly that, that it kind of comes to stand between us and what being really has to offer if we adopt a more humble uh, approach to it. And I think the same thing applies here to being a man, that rather than looking at it as this gender, I can be all these kind of things and I can even, I mean, use technology to change my body and then become something else. Mm, sometimes we, when, if we get too preoccupied with this, we may miss some of the potentials in just being humble towards, wow, being a man or, uh, or being, a, or, or our relationship to women. I mean, there's a, I think this is something I've also experienced that the more I have worked with, not just intellectually, but also personally with this notion of what it means to be a man, the more humble and the more amazed I get about women. Wow, they can make human beings. Wow. Like, so, so there's a, I think there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of potential. There's a lot of resources right there in front of us that we're not utilizing because we're so preoccupied with this other thing. Um, what's your view of of technology and progress also perhaps connecting a little bit with what you're doing with mm -hmm. with cryptocurrency and all that what's how do you feel about it <laughs> i'll show you my phone this is a nokia x3 from Tiny. 2011 so it's old school I, it's got buttons on it for people that <laughs> it's i think i think for me the way i see technology is that it's kind of moved uh, up, 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 and then it peaked at around 2011 when this phone was uh, created and Nokia uh, was kind of like they were in crisis. And then, it, and then from there, technological development has gone down. So we had a peak in 2011 and now it's moving. I, I don't know. I'm very, I'm, I don't, I'm, uh, I'm skeptical to say I it it uh, technology sometimes makes me tired. I get so tired sometimes with technology. Like I mean, of course, and then again, it's nice. I mean, like we can have this conversation, and you and you make a podcast and you put it on the internet. And of course, I think that's great, also. But I, I'm also I also get tired. Uh, I have now I'm, I'm teaching my students on Teams. And I'm just, I, they are so great. They are so great, my students. I, yeah, they're great. I, yeah, but I just get tired. So um, I think technology is overrated, <laughs> to be honest. But it, it's, but that's also personal opinion. And, uh, and then with cryptocurrencies, I think what I like about, I remember the, the way I, I came into cryptocurrency was I was doing, I was writing my book on uh, money 
I've written several books, but especially this one called Making Money. I think I had just, I probably just finished that one. And then I've written a, a smaller one in, in Danish. And then I was invited to come and speak at this conference for cryptocurrencies. And this was in 2014, 15, around that time. At that time, I didn't know anything about Bitcoin, but I did. I was skeptical about sort of digital things. Um, and I like cash uh, and also skeptical about sort of speculation, financial speculation. So I kind of thought, okay, it's digital and it's speculative. It's bad. So I was kind of thinking, yeah, I'll come and tell them that it's really bad. But then I thought, I, maybe I should just look into it before I do that. And then I looked, I read the paper by Satoshi Nakamoto uh, on, and I was just blown away at how genius, how brilliant this was. I mean, the, yeah, sort of the, the I don't, yeah, it's, it, was, it was the way that this system was constructed. It was so simple in many ways and, and yet so robust and so, yeah. So I was really like, wow, impressed by that. Mm. So, and that's kind of how I got into, yeah, being interested in, in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. What was it in particular that like impressed you about it? I think it was the simplicity, just like this phone. It's, 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 also, it's actually a brilliant phone. It's, 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 it's simple and yet it can do, it kind of can do what you need it to do, if you're me at least. Um, and, and it was the same with Bitcoin. It doesn't do very many things, but the things it does, it really does, does well. Um, and so what did I, there were several things about it. So now it's ringing actually. And my, this is my friend who uh, I did my money stuff with. He's calling me now, but I, I'm not going to answer him. But uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. Isn't that what Jung calls uh, synchronicity? Maybe. Uh, mm, anyway. Yes, indeed. So, <laughs> so uh, one of the things is like, so how do you, how do you solve, you know, like regular banks, they have this problem of secrecy and making sure that people don't hack their system and so you need to, yeah. How, do, how does Bitcoin solve that? By radical transparency. So they kind of turn things around by saying the way we achieve safe security is not by hiding stuff. It's the opposite. It's by putting everything radically out into the open. So everyone can look in to the blockchain and see what has happened. And, and that just makes it, no one can cheat then. And I'm like, wow, how brilliant is that? It's also sometimes, I, on a personal note, sometimes I, uh, I've noticed sometimes when I'm, um, you're kind of in trouble or something, you can, what should I do now? What should I say to this person? How should I play this? And then I, sometimes I realize, hmm, if I'm just being completely honest here, that's actually a really good strategy. And then just, this is how it is. And this is how, it, and then things work out. And it's the same with, with uh, Bitcoin. It's like, yeah, let's just try and be honest and open. And then that will, so, so that's just one of these things that I, I thought was uh, brilliant. And then of course, there's also the whole incentive structure, the way that that's been calibrated, where you have these miners, again, where they are, even if they're crooked, their prime, they, the incentive structure is still that they are better off being honest. They are better off 
processing the transactions in the block in the proper way because if they were to like manipulate it or do something and then this would be found out later then the money that they had won from this would be worthless because they would be on a fork and everyone else was going this way something like that so again there's this truth and transparency and honesty kind of built into the system um and then I also, another thing which has less to do perhaps with the technology and more with sort of the ideology surrounding uh, Bitcoin, I thought what I really liked about it was that it was, it was kind of, on, at the same time, it was like a critique of centralization, central banks, government deficit spending, all that kind of stuff on the one hand, and then at the same time, it was also a critique or in opposition to the existing banking system. So it was like sort of a third way. It's not, not all power to the banks, all power to the state. No, it was like all power to the users or whatever you like to call it. So, um, yeah, so there was a lot of um, the things that appealed to me in that. Uh, but most, first and foremost, the brilliance of it. It's like you, yeah, it was just it's like it's fascinating to think from the perspective of well the ideology the ideologies of modernity especially liberalism and communism are very concerned with universality rather than limiting humans to particular positions in time and culture there's a sense of like well, how can we have a universal subject and for liberalism that's the capitalist individual who is able to interact with the with other human beings based on the laws mm. of free exchange and rule of law and nothing else and for communism that is the the universal emancipated proletariat no longer constrained by the oppression of a a ruling class who exploit them in their labor right so, like I said, both are concerned with this almost universal emancipation. How do we solve the problem of having lots of people and their interaction with one another without leaving them subject to arbitrary coercion, you might say? And both try attempt to solve it and both wind up with their flaws. Like communism ends up actually having to coerce everybody and liberalism does produce a class structure where some people are relatively free of coercion mm. and some people are just not though supposedly they're free to get out of it mm. what it seems like this technological frontier opens up is like a non-ideological way to bring about some kind of human universality mm. it's no longer this sense that we all relate to each other as individuals or as proletarians because that mm. is the idea of our time but we actually have a technological substructure upon which we can all have some kind of equal exchange which okay. I don't think has ever existed in that way before. Mm -hmm. Well, I, just as you were speaking, I was. Uh, well, I'm I'm excited to be on this podcast for a number of reasons. One of them being that Alexander Dugin has been on this podcast, so now I'm on the same podcast that Alexander Dugin was on, which is uh, yeah. And as you were talking, I was kind of thinking of maybe there's a because there was some kind there was a slight some some Duginism in what you were saying there. 
So let me let me try and I haven't thought this before, so we'll see if it works out. But I want to make a Dukinist analysis of Bitcoin. So in so basically, what I identify in my Making Money book are sort of three different theories of money, and perhaps also three different ways of organizing a monetary system, or three different ways that we kind of seen throughout history. So the first one, and the, to some extent, maybe the simplest, is like the, the commodity theory, which is the one where we have money is based on some sort of commodity value, it's based on gold or silver and so forth. And then one of the features of that system is that it's, there's a natural limit to the amount of money you can create. And there's the second one, which is the state theory, which is the one where you have a central bank, they print money out of nothing or out of paper, and then they send them into circulation through government spending, and then they take it back through taxation. So you have the state in charge of uh, creating money. And then you have the third one, which is the credit theory, where money is a credit relation. And in this, in this system, money is created in commercial banks where they, they make loans and the way they fund these loans is by creating deposits at the same time. Um, and in that system, it's like the banks that are kind of in charge of the money created. They may be regulated, of course, but they are largely in charge of making uh, money. And money is then, or, or credit is then made available to the economy for various reasons. Some of it's speculation and some of it for productive investments. So what Bitcoin does is that it takes elements of all these three things. Uh, let me see if I can. So the first one, the commodity theory is very obvious. It's there's a cap on the amount of Bitcoins. So it is naturally, it's a deflationary currency. There can only be 21 million Bitcoins. So in that sense, even though it's, yeah, it's digital, and yet it has the qualities of a commodity money system. Um, then there's, there's the second one, the state element. And one of the qualities of the state element is that it's actually able to create money without creating debt at the same time. So a central bank can just create money and give it to the government and they can spend it, which and, and there may be good ways and bad ways of doing it, but they can do that without necessarily creating an equivalent amount of debt. So they can just spend it in the money. That's very good if you want to finance a war, or but also if you want to finance a welfare state or whatever you want to finance. And Bitcoin has that quality as well, that it's actually creating money without creating debt. So if you look at the blockchain as a balance sheet, it only has like... Ah, okay, maybe that's getting a little bit too technical. But there's only one side of it. It's not, it, when there's a new Bitcoin is created, it's mined into the system. It's earned into the system, which means that it, it, it doesn't, you don't have a, a, a pile of Bitcoin debt that's building up in the economy. No, you don't have that. You just have the money. And then they can actually stimulate whatever productive activities and what have you. And then finally, one of the qualities of the credit system is that it's digital. So this, this is like one of the reasons why banks are, or bank money is superior to cash, 
physical cash is because it's digital. And of course, obviously, Bitcoin has that quality as well. So just like Dugan has this idea of the fourth political theory that kind of takes the best of the three failed ideologies of the 20th century, we can say that Bitcoin is the fourth form of money that takes the best of the three failed systems of money that we've seen throughout history, the commodity theory, state theory, and credit theory. Wow. <laughs> I just the made that up on the spot. Bitcoin. You heard it here first, folks. Though I think he'd be, he'd be quite... Uh, he, I have the feeling that he's not a tech guy, and as such, uh, he'll no. find a way to say it. If, if Dugin, Dugin is liberal. can I send a direct message to Dugin? So Dugin, if you are seeing this and you, are, you think, oh, that sounds like a great idea, but I'm a little skeptical about technology, you must think it comes from a man who has a, mm. a Nokia X3. So I share your skepticism about uh, technology. So please bear that in mind, uh, Mr. Dugan. Yeah, and we all have washing machines, like he said. So he's like, yeah, modernity is not all that bad. I mean, <laughs> he literally but I, also, I also, I think also Heidegger, of course, Heidegger is also skeptical about technology. But I, uh, but I also think he kind of accepts it as, I think he makes this distinction. For him, technology <clears throat> is not necessarily the, thing itself but it's more our way of relating to the thing yeah so yeah. i think there is a way out there's kind of like if you if you if you just there's a way of relating to technology where you kind of still retain like a healthy relationship to being i i uh, I, I get your point let me add something to that um i'm personally skeptical of a personal relationship to being because they're always already framed by technology. However, and to build on your Duganist critique or, or, or the, the, the argument that you made about the monetary elements, uh, there is space to think about how these different monetary policies or ideologies and to think about how they frame the being that eventually is lived out through the economy and through society. In other words, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, when we, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going on a limb here, but the point of transition between the gold standard and the state standard uh, might be sort of a hallmark of liberalism, of Americanism, of the bourgeois mm -hmm. society, of eventually mm -hmm. they finance the war, but and eventually the post-war society, mm -hmm. and with all of the cultural things that that has bred. In other words, there is a that there was a technological expansion, there was a cultural liberalization because mm -hmm. there was no physical limit mm -hmm. a, like through gold. Mm -hmm. And this eventually leads us to have to be, to think about technology, to think about gender, to think about all of these things today, according mm -hmm. to a very specific mode of thinking. We have been inframed by this relation to technology and by technology, we can classify money, concepts, concepts to mm -hmm. think about gender, uh, Bitcoin. And so, the whole era mm -hmm. is very, the whole zeitgeist is very inframed, gestalt by the um, monetary policy, monetary ideology. You know, if the other guy says that politics is downstream from culture, then all of these things are kind of downstream from 
monetary policy mm. and then that itself is a technology and a technological in framing of how one is and i mm. think that that's a very cool way of thinking about it and and i think mm. that i was excited when you started to speak about the fact that this podcast is touching upon these very three different themes right the, the being the heideggerian being and then gender and then cryptocurrency mm. where do they fit well they fit in that they are all kind of they don't come it doesn't surprise me that they come about in this way right they're connected because they're related in this in the mode of emerging mm. in the mode of coming to pass and and for example if, just to finish off if you, look, if you look at the different ways that the different monetary policies that you describe hold money uh you know the standing in reserve the way that that prob that that happens through each of these monetary policies is different and I think that there's space to think about that. That's very cool. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about whether, I think I'm still coming back to, you You, you kind of asked me in the beginning, how do you feel about what your approach yeah. to technology? And I didn't really have a good answer to that other than just showing my phone. So I'm kind of sitting with that. But I, cause I'm not really, I'm not against technology, but I'm also not for it. There's something, and I'm, and, and then I'm thinking of maybe Maybe that's also what you're doing on this podcast. Maybe the time we're in now is a time for kind of looking a little bit like Dugin does. Like, so he's looking back at these three ideologies and say, what are, what are the potentials of these three that we can kind of harness and use? So maybe this is a time for sort of nachdenken. I don't know what the English word is. Like, uh, nachdenken means. Uh, Afterthought. Like afterthought or reflecting after yeah, yeah exactly afterthought 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 so and i and i want to relate that to another topic that has the similar characteristics which is psychedelics i i recently read a book i think it was called how to change your mind and it was about psychedelics and the way i understand it is that psychedelics i, I right now they're kind of seeing this this like this revival of psychedelics so in the 70s in the 60s, there was like this, yeah, let's do psychedelics. Let's take a lot of drugs. Let's blah, 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 blah. And then some of these, some of this, it just, it went too far, right? I mean, with, yeah, drug epidemics and stuff, it kind of went too far. And then, so, it's, which meant that it was kind of like polarized. It was just like, either it's drugs and then it's too much, or it's just like no drugs at all. So, and and what's what I think what 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 I what what may be happening at the moment is that we're kind of like looking back at drugs and saying, yeah, maybe they were not all good or not all bad, or let's look at them and let's see what we can do with them, like sort of in a careful environment, and mm -hmm. um, just like Dugan is doing with the ideologies. And of course, I mean, Dugan does not say, yeah, let's go back to Nazism. Yeah, that was really great. But he's kind of like saying, oh, yeah, so we had Nazism. Let's take a look at it. I mean, yeah, did they have one or two good points? Let's take those, but not go all the way. And it's a little bit the same with drugs. Like, ah, oh, yeah, let's look at this. Yeah, maybe if you eat some mushrooms and you have a depression, then you can do something, whatever. Yeah. So, so maybe that's kind of where... At least, or if 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 that is where we are today, I don't know if we are, but if that's where we are, I think that's a good place to be. Actually, uh, yeah. maybe a little bit. Also, maybe we don't. 
There's this whole idea that, oh, you, we need to invent all these new things and come up with new things. No, maybe we don't. Maybe, maybe there's time to just look at the things that we already invented and created. Like because this one the, and then, mm. yeah. Yeah, because is there something is there, good yeah. Mm. And is there any alternative, really? Aren't we already invented ourselves by the previous accumulation uh, of technology and ideologies and ways of thinking by... You know, by being in favor or, or being against and by picking and choosing, aren't we already in that position of like, are we ever in a position where we want to create out of nothing ex nihilo? I don't think so. No, that's true. But there's, but I think Heidegger has in his critique of Das Mann, he has, I think he divides it into three elements. And I think one of them is Neugierde, Neugierde, which is curiosity. And Neu means new. And gear that means it's it's not desire. It's more like uh, being greedy, being mm -hmm. greedy for the new. Um, and he sort of he, he's skeptical of that, Bec and because he says, well, if if the only if if the only thing that interests you in the new is the fact that it's new, then that's a very short-lived energy, because once you the new stops being new quite quickly mm. um, and I think there's been a movement in and there's been good things in that but for the last 40 years or mm -hmm. 50 maybe even there has been this sort of neugier there's this also in philosophy like all this yeah yeah oh yeah let's deconstruct yeah yeah we'll deconstruct this whoa yeah great now we can deconstruct where we are now and whoa, whoa, whoa. and then what you've done that four times you're like Ah, almost sounds like another round of deconstruction. Oh, I'm so tired, right? Almost sounds so, like printing money. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's and and the thing is, yeah, it is. It, it it's. I think. I mean, credit banking system, credit money, and so it's. I think it has done. Obviously, banks they've done a good thing. And this massive sort of credit expansion has also pushed like a lot of innovation and all that. Uh, but then it's also gone too far. Mm -hmm. And the same with the government, like after World War One, uh, World War Two, you had this like expansion of state money, which was yeah. used to finance the rebuilding of uh, of uh, Germany after World War Two and welfare state and all this. And then at some point it just went too far. Now it's some of this used to like fund these endless wars and. Uh, and maybe also even making this, this that's a problem in my country that uh, this the, the state is just too big it's just it's like we've just funded it's just funded too much it's just too big now uh, which becomes very obvious now with corona because half the people were kind of funded by the government already so it's not like yeah anyway that's Maybe another topic, but... Um, like the underlying fantasy structure, I think, of modernity, to go back to the Duganist points, I think is one of liberation. Modernity is founded on liberation from the yeah. old order, liberation yeah. from God and from the arbitrary power of the aristocracy. Yeah. And then socialism and communism come up as liberation within the liberation. And it's like, yeah. even in the Marxist writings, it's like you have to have a fully realized bourgeoisie before you can have... The next revolution so like there's a, yeah. a revolution and then you're free from the revolution and then yeah. fascism itself is a kind of 
revolutionary conservatism. It's like we're going to have a revolution that brings us back to the way that things really should be, but still with uh, the modern apparatus. And I think the paradox to think now is almost the liberation from liberation itself. That's kind of the final liberation, if you will. It's like to no longer think in terms of the ecstasy of being free from our constraints and start to actually enter into productive, creative relationship with these constraints. And so this is where, for example, the the transhumanists, are, uh, they're still just modernists, really, and that their, their goal is liberation from the constraints of destiny and yeah. from the constraints of mortal life and yeah. these conversations about the masculinity and the Dasein. And I think what we do in the men's movement, which I love, it's like, it's a questioning into what does it mean to be a man rather than a sense of how can we be free from being a man, be free as men. I think it's more like, how can we just be men given this body, this, this yeah. personality? Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. I want to say two things. I think there's a, I think I sense like right now I'm reading this book, which is the new uh, Jordan Peterson book, uh, beyond order. Um, so and of course, this whole—I mean, John Peterson himself, but also the whole sort of—I don't know what you want to call—movement around him is a move. I, and I see that as something positive. It has this sort of nachdenken, this like sort of afterthought, and it also—it and it's also something that's kind of looking. I, I, so, rule number one—I don't know if I, yeah, I can do this. Uh, it's not being released until Tuesday, but uh, anyway. Well, so rule number one is this. So I see if I can, this is probably not the official because it's in Danish, but he says, be, uh, hesitate, you should hesitate to diminish a societal institution and create a results. So there's this, not, there's this sort of take it easy. Just because things are old doesn't necessarily mean they're bad. Look at them and, but also, if someone does something new and it's good, then you should also not just, ah, oh, yeah, that's nothing. You should kind of, yeah, fine. So there's, here there's this sort of tempered, uh, and, and conservative, there's a conservative movement here, which I think is uh, very, to me, very healthy, because it is kind of looking back and see, maybe there are some resources right there that we haven't properly harnessed yet. And then in the men's movement or in, in our men's work, a, a, a critical question or the critical question, which was the one that was sort of on the agenda for the uh, European men's gathering last time, is our fathers. Um, and what is our relationship to our fathers? And, 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 and I think there's been like in society, uh, there's been this movement against the father. Becoming a man was all about getting away from your father, or I'm not going to be like my father, and I'm going to be better than my father. And da, 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 da. So it's about, about making yourself bigger than your father. And then, as you know, Owen, I'm, I'm also interested in family constellation. And one of the, like, sort of family constellation 101 is that if you make yourself bigger than your father, you're creating a situation where it's like water has to run upwards. And it's not a good thing. So regardless of your father, regardless of who he was or what he did, you need to find like a systemic solution where 
you can't accept the fact that your father is bigger than you. Not that he's better or anything, but he's just, he came, he was there before. And he's the reason why you're here. So whatever you think of your life, he's part of the, he, he gave it to you. And especially your masculinity is what you got from your father. So, and, and in, in, in family constellation, you kind of, you, you kind of see that. You kind of see, wow, if I, if I turn that around, then I have this source of energy that I can just throw into life. And then, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think there's also, uh, yeah, I think I'm just making the same point again, like, in a, but, but yeah. Uh, um, Well, it makes me think, like, from what you were saying at the start, right, about being a man, there's something coming from behind yes. you. Yes. Yeah. That feels... <laughs> there's something very is... organic about that. And it's, yeah. like, expressed in so many poetic phrases, like standing on the shoulders of giants, right? And I think yeah. that's perhaps what we, again, lose in this post-revolutionary world, in this world where everything is liberation all the time. It's like we're constantly looking for the way to negate the generation that came before us, which has a healthy aspect to it. But if we're also not looking to the ways that we are going to appreciate and be grateful for and humble in the like, stature of the generation before, then it's only just half the story. Yeah, And it's agonizing because you constantly have to live a life of looking at everybody else's failures. Yeah, 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 I exactly. And I think there's also, mm, I think you, another thing you're missing uh, is the quality and the meaning of normal things, ordinary things, basic things, like giving life, family, like giving life. So, so like, mm, you're, Obviously, all fathers have passed life on. It's like, that's how it is. So we, and everyone has a father. Everyone has a father. Even though some people say they don't, they're lying. Or they're not lying. But everyone has a father. And their father has passed life to them. And I think it's safe to assume that on some level, that that is the most meaningful element of his his being right so um and there's no way of how can you do that if you kind of want to oh i don't want to be like my father i don't want to then you're kind of cutting yourself off from that basic thing that like okay so maybe one of the i'm not saying everyone should have kids but a lot of people do and and the ones who do most of them or if not all find that it's a very meaningful thing right just passing on life it's also very banal it's like, yeah, it's, I mean, people have done that for thousands of years. So if you're in this mode of, or well, the things that give meaning are the ones that I've invented myself and mm -hmm. that are new, then it's very difficult for you to see like the meaning and quality of just having a baby, which people have had for, yeah, as long as there's been humans, right? So, um, and again, I'm, I want to make. The, I want to tell a little story from um, the European Men's Gathering last year. So uh, one of the, there was like a one panel where there was uh, a couple of speakers who were like sort of telling their part of their life story. And then one of them, he was a young guy. I think he was in the beginning of his thirties, thirty-two or something. And he was 
He was either, I think he was the European champion of Thai boxing. So he was a real fighter and he just looked great and he was strong and yeah. And, uh, and then he was, he had, he, if it hadn't been for Corona, he would have gone to Japan to fight for the world champion. So he was like a real, and then I remember he was like presented and then they said, yeah, and then he's the European champion of uh, Thai boxing. And people were like, yeah, yeah, wait, wait, wait. And then they, the interviewer the, or the presenter asked him, uh, how about do you have family and stuff? And then he said, yes, when I was uh, 15, I think, I met a woman. And uh, now I've been married to her for 15 years and we have three sons or three kids. And then all these men in the room were like, yeah! So it was like, oh yeah, you're European champion uh, uh, in Taiwan. Yeah, that's wow, great. You have three kids? Whoa! And I, I was just so happy. I was just like, wow. Um, and I think, hmm. Yeah, that it, it's all these... Uh, and I like that because it, it's not, I mean, more men can be fathers than can be European champions of mm-hmm. eye boxing. Uh, that's how it is, right? So, um, yeah, okay. so I get, I, 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 yeah, my point here is just that I think there's this movement towards something more basic in life, something that also something that has to do with where we come from. And again, mm-hmm. coming back to Heidegger, of course, that was also his thing. Right? Where do you come from? Uh, um, What was your experience when your first child was born? uh, I remember my... uh, I remember just when he came out, my first thought was, this is uh, like... On the one hand, like this is, uh, I had no way of imagining it. And at the same time, I have, this is what I had imagined. This was exactly what I, he is just like what I wanted. Like if, if I were to sort of, you know, like when you do, uh, when you get takeaway, you can kind of say, oh, do you want the, if you order chicken nuggets, for instance, like, do you want barbecue sauce? Do you want uh, sour cream? Do you want blah, blah, blah. You make all these decisions, right? So if I had done one of these with uh, uh, a person and I ticked all these, he was exactly what I wanted in a way, right? So I was just like, wow, this is great. And then um, there was a lot of, uh, then his, his mother and I, um, we hadn't known each other for very long. And then there was a lot of trouble and we split up and there was a lot of complications. And yeah, it was very, very difficult for, uh, for, several years um, and then at the same time I mean there, there's been I've never even been close I mean just the idea of sort of regretting anything or thinking oh maybe I shouldn't maybe I should have had him or maybe I should have had him with her or something never it's never occurred to me I've never even been close to that and I think that's also so I think I write about something about that in the book mm. Yeah, okay. I don't know. If, I actually write something about abortion in the book, and I think what mm, when we think about whether to have an abortion or not, we're kind of thinking, oh well, I'm that I'm not there in my life, or 
he's not the man I want to have a kid with or something, blah, 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 blah. So you're kind of looking at your options and then you're making a, a decision, right? Which, I mean, I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I'm not judging that, but I think there's that way of looking at it. You lose something in that. And what you lose is that you miss the fact that once the child is there, you are another person. You are another woman and you're also another man. So the whole matrix for evaluating this decision is like it, once the child is there, the matrix is completely different. So whatever calculation you made here just doesn't make any sense anymore because everything has changed. Uh, um, yeah, and I think that kind of, that gets missed sometimes in discussions about uh, abortions. Mm. Yeah. Um, how did we get to abortions? Where were we, where were we talking from? Uh, are you asking me about my, my son there? Yeah. Uh, I want to suggest for, I have two sons. So if they're watching this, I had the same feeling with the other one. He was also perfect. Uh, I mean, he was the. It was not the same type of sauce that I ordered. I ordered a slightly different sauce and uh, other type of nuggets, but uh, he was perfect as well. So yeah, <laughs> just to get that straight, uh, and they yeah, still are. Uh, yeah. mm. um, Ole, oh guys, I think we're we're approaching the point of uh, of wrapping up. Um, yeah. Is there anything, any any final comments that you want to leave? Any final, uh, if you want to sort of plug your book yeah this is my book it's called the meaning of being a man you can uh you can google it and then you'll find it uh, you can get it on amazon uh i also do have a web page it doesn't have so much stuff on it um it's simply called the meaning of being a man what you can find on my web page is actually so i make references to different film clips and stuff in there and i put some of that on the website so you can kind of see uh, small uh, clips that has something to do with the book. One of them, if you go to the website, one of them you must see is, I don't know, how old are you? You're not old enough to remember uh, the European Championship in 1992? No. Uh, no. Do you know enough about history to know who won? I don't. That Denmark? No. Of course. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I remember uh, Yeah. Yeah, and then that. there was yeah, there was, there's one goal, there's a very, all goals were important there, but there was one in particular, which was the one that made us, uh, sort of propel us into the semifinals against France, uh, scored by a guy called uh, Lars Elstrom. Mm. Uh, I write about that in the book, and uh, the goal, uh, can I tell that little story? Can I yeah, tell yes. yeah okay. Okay, so the story, the backstory here is, um, Denmark at the time, our, our national team was in a deep crisis. It was like horrible. And they had this kind of horrible, weird, weird, weird coach, weird manager, Rekord Müller-Lils. It was crazy. Everyone hated him. And he, just, he would say these weird stuff. And most of the players had no respect for him and everything. And, and then we, we actually didn't qualify. We were kind of second after Yugoslavia. But then there was a war in Yugoslavia. So they were kind of, they couldn't go to uh, Sweden. And, and this was like very late, like a few weeks before the tournament was to start. So all the Danish players, they were already on holiday and they had started drinking beers and doing barbecues. 
And then they were kind of, do you want to go to the European Championship? And then they did. So they went. And then uh, our best player was uh, Brian Laudrup. The, the, his uh, older brother, Michael Laudrup, he didn't want to come because he, he, he couldn't stand the manager. So he, he didn't want to go. But Brian Laudrup, he went and he was by far our best player. Um, most of the other ones were just playing in the Danish league. Okay, so anyway, in the third round, we or the third, uh, I'm, no, I'm, making, I'm pushing your patience here, I, I know that, but I must tell this though. So in the third game, we were playing against France and we had to win it. We'd lost the first equal the second and we had to win and we were it was 2-2 and we weren't playing very good so everyone was thinking if there's any chance that we're going to win this it's going to be because Brian Laudrup is just going to make some miraculous stunt right so what does Rickard Müller Nielsen do <laughs> he makes a substitution and who does he pull out none other than Brian Laudrup so our only it's like taking Maradona out mm-hmm. of a game like he did that. And then he took Lars Elstrup. And I think at the time, he was also just playing in the Danish league. I think it was like just <laughs> this wow. regular player. And uh, anyway, so he comes in. And of course, what happens the first time Lars Elstrup uh, hits, uh, touches the ball, he scores. And then uh, it was 3-2. And then we went into semifinals. And then the rest is... Uh, <clears throat> and I write about that uh, in the book. Uh, this mm. episode, uh, I'm, I'll spare you what the philosophical point of it is, other than just promoting the fact to historyless people like you, Owen, who uh, who don't know this uh, crucial fact about the 20th century that we won in 1992 to re-educate people like you. So, um, anyway. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Thank you so much, man. I will just say very briefly as well, if people listening enjoyed this conversation, come and check out Manifesto. Like we're doing a lot yeah. of cool stuff and it's um, it's this European men's movement. Me and Ole are both part of it. Yeah. A lot of the guys we've had on the podcast are. It's growing. It's exciting. It's everything we've been discussing here. Yeah, I agree with that, Owen. I agree with that. And that's it's the reason why I know you. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Right. You meet great men at Manifesto. We do. Daniel, anything to say? I know you've got a meeting, so we need to shut this ah, down. Okay, I, I pushed it there. I'm sorry. No, it's all right. It's all right. Yeah, but thank you so much for coming in, Ole. And yeah. um, very good to meet you. Hopefully, we can yeah. continue to talk. I would love that. Hmm? Thank you. All right, guys. Take care. See you soon. We hope you enjoyed the show. Consider becoming our patron and helping us put out more content like this. Patreon.com forward slash Techno Social.